You're listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, episode 196. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with mental performance coach and author Ray Santiago III to discuss his new book, The Pillar Bees, and how we can change the way we approach self-criticism and perfectionism so we can stop being our worst critic. Santiago talks about self-compassion being the new self-confidence and how accepting your failures is necessary in order to quickly rebound and move past them. If you feel like you're always comparing your achievements with others and can't fully appreciate how far you've come, it's time to start showing yourself the compassion you deserve. Don't miss this episode. Are you ready to raise your game? 2021 is the year to increase your performance on and off the field. The Athlete's Edge Journal was designed to cultivate self-confidence and mental resilience through the power of sports psychology. Whether you are a professional athlete, a former college athlete, or have aspirations of greatness in the future, this journal is for you. Visit winthementalgame.com and use the promo code GRANTPAR20 to receive a 20% discount at checkout. Act now to take your mental game to the next level. What if you could rapidly accelerate your team's performance and skill acquisition just minutes before practice or game? NeuroTrainer triggers high-performance states with virtual reality brain training that can be deployed in the gym or at home. In just eight minutes, your team will be more focused and ready for whatever you or the game throws at them. Visit NeuroTrainer.com to schedule your demo and get your team locked in. Hey, Ray, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Grant? Oh, man, I'm doing good, man. It's it's so great to reconnect with you. I know, uh, I think it might have been two or three years ago when you reached out to me and uh, we started our relationship and you keep on you keep on reaching out to me, man, and I love it. So it's so great to not only reconnect with you, but to have you on my show, to learn about you being a mental performance coach, a really good one, and your book, man, The Pillar B. So I can't wait to get into that and just, uh, just get inside your mind today. Yeah, happy to be here. And uh, it's a humbling thing where someone... Well, I see you as as a leader in the field. And so when I reach out and you actually respond, that's a huge deal to me. (laughs) Um, But then, as you know, as a mental performance coach, it can be a lonely world. And so when you can connect with other mental performance coaches who are willing to share their insights and share their knowledge, um, you know, it's a special thing. So I appreciate that and the the relationship that we've had over the years. Man, it's... uh... It's an honor. Thank you for those kind words, man. Um, you know, you've always been very diligent on reaching out, being thirsty for knowledge, uh, connecting with people in the industry, you connecting me with people for my podcast. So, um, you know, I always say this and I learned this from my, from my mentor, Graham, my energy is, is my offering. And, uh, and you do that, like you, you're very good with your energy and connecting. So, um, so I can't wait to get more into this, but before we get into your book and your role as a mental performance coach, you know, we always got to talk about mental toughness. So when you think about being mentally tough, uh, and I know that you've experienced that as a mental performance coach, you're teaching it as well. You were a collegiate baseball player. 
Um, can what do you, what what does being mentally tough mean to you? Sure, um, it's a lot different now than it was when I was an athlete. So I'll give you my definition now. Yeah, um, and it's really simple. It's showing up for yourself no matter what. Mental toughness is showing up for yourself no matter what. So it's really easy to show up for ourselves when things are going well. But when crap hits the fan, and as Ken Revisi used to say, it always hits the fan. How do you show up for yourself? You know, a lot of us think, well, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Instead, we can ask ourselves, hey, what do I need right now? Um, there's this great image that I have and I share in my book and with clients is after a mistake, you know, mentally, we, we can be this in this fetal position on the ground, whether it's embarrassed, ashamed, angry, whatever. And then you see your evil twin coming over and just beating you up. And that's what we do. Uh, when mistakes happen, whether it's through verbal or I've seen guys hit themselves in the head or whatever it might be, but it's, it's okay. There's that, that's what's natural. But what's not natural is after making an error, the mentally tough, the real mental toughness would be to kneel down. Hey, that sucks. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. Hey, how can I help you? Because I ask athletes, which one is going to help you rebound and get back to playing at your best? And the mental toughness that I talk about, uh, a lot about self-compassion, it doesn't sound macho, but macho is overrated. And so the mental toughness I talk about is what do you need right now? Do I need steel? Do I need a kick in the butt? Or do I need silk? Do I need a hug? And understanding which one is going to help me get back to playing at my best, mm -hmm. right? Self-criticism has never worked. Right. It's not even once has it ever worked, yet we all try it and we all do it because it's natural. But as you and I do as mental performance coaches, as we train the mental muscle to do the right thing, not the thing that comes natural and it's not always easy. Oh, no, absolutely. I also feel like, you know, and I say this a lot on my podcast, but when I talk about when I ask that question, what does mental toughness mean to you or what does it mean to be mentally tough? There's always something a little bit different and I love it. Because we all know what mental toughness is, but everybody has a different internal representation of it. So sure. when, as you were talking, uh, you know, and I've heard this a little bit through the last six, seven years I've been doing this. And part of it too, mental, being mentally tough is surrendering mm. in the moment, to surrender in the moment and not to, to beat yourself up, not to get grip the bat per se, right? <laughs> um, it's about creating enough space so you can actually solve the problem too. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we're going to get into, when we start talking about your book, we're going to talk about how to deal with mistakes mm -hmm. because I believe, and there's a lot of components out there. I believe that when an athlete, the hardest thing for an athlete is to get over a mistake. Right. And it's the hardest thing too, is to actually, when they have confidence and they lose it, how do they get it back? Mm -hmm. Right. And that kind of plays in with dealing with the mistake. So when you think about your whole career, even as a mental performance coach, share a time where you had to be mentally tough. Sure. Uh, many times throughout my career, but with this newer definition, because I didn't have that definition growing, uh, growing up. And I had uh, my college coach was a pretty harsh guy. So it was kind of more of you either do it right or I'm going to pull you. So mental toughness, right, for that was better be perfect. You better not mess up. Right. And that's you know, totally false. But to kind of piggyback on that, even this, this morning, I'll give an example of, uh, I have a proof copy of my there it book is. that's supposed to be the final version. 
and I'm kind of studying it, some stuff that I want to share. And I found two errors in my book. Well, that's making an error. And I'm like, you idiot. Are you kidding me? You just loaded this up to KDP Amazon. You loaded it up to Ingram Spark. I don't want to bother my editor anymore, all this stuff. And then I just took a deep breath and said, guess what? Mistakes happen. You found your mistake. You can still fix it. Your book's not released yet. Let it go. You're human, right? Um, failure doesn't, failure, it lets us know we're human, right? Right. And so uh, that's mental toughness because right then I was able to get back into the mindset of, hey, you have a podcast coming up in 30 minutes. You need to be mentally prepared for that. So it allowed me to move on and actually mend my relationship with myself because when you make an error, there's a disconnect between who you are and your ideal self. Right. right. And so when you when you're kind to yourself, we'll get into it, it mends the relationship instead of separates or disconnect. Right. You know what's really cool? And I know it's, it's semantics for some people, some of our listeners out there, but I like how you used uh mistake and error. Um, because when we think about failure, and I'm I'm learning to change my language. This is just my perspective. So I'm not saying this is like the gospel, True. but there's a lot of people out there that think there's a big difference between mistake and failure. Hmm. So, and it took me a while to, I'm like, yeah, for me, I, I get it now. Like when you have a mistake, mistakes are going to happen, period. Hmm. Cause you're not perfect. They're going to happen. So if you can learn how to overcome that mistake in the moment, mm-hmm. that's the edge. That's one of the areas where you can have the edge. Failure is not showing up. Failure hmm. is not, is quitting. Yes. Right. So when you think about like, even when you were working out to failure, where you can't do it anymore, or when you turn on an engine, it doesn't turn on, the engine failed. Mm-hmm. So that's when I start to realize, like, as athletes, I'm like, you didn't fail. You just had a mistake. You just had an error. Right. And that's okay. Like, have the space, hold the space to have that error. Next mm-hmm. place B, let's go to the next, right? So um, so I'm, I'm learning how, like, when I'm working with my clients, and not to say failure as much. Mm-hmm. Unless they totally give up because I'm actually working with a, with an athlete right now that is failing in some mm-hmm. aspects. So, mm-hmm. but you were using the language of mistakes and error for me, it's, it stood out. So I, I wanted to throw that out there. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I love it. And I was thinking uh, a while ago, I read a book, Brian Kane talks about mistakes being missed takes. Right. And if you think of like a blooper reel, like I love The Office. My sisters send me that show. Uh, they send me clips all the time of their bloopers. Mm. And what are those? Those are mistakes. Yeah. But how do they handle them? They just laugh them off. And I know you can't necessarily laugh it off during a game and especially if it's a big moment. But mentally, you can laugh something off because humor is so healing. And, and it just allows you like, that happened. Okay. How am I going to respond? And so when you talk about an actor, they're not worried about how many missed takes they have. They're just like, all right, let's get this right. And we'll move on to the next thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's been a long time. He was probably in the first year of doing my podcast. So it's been six years ago and I kick myself and I remember his name right now. Uh, but he played for uh, the Rockies. He also played for the, the Cardinals when they were winning those, those world series, when Larissa was a head coach. And do you know what position he played? I mean, uh, I know Larry, Larry Walker played for both teams, but maybe thinking uh, it was Aaron, man, 
He's probably he's a, or no, he's, he, he played in the he played outfield. I think he he might have played second base at, at some point of his career, but I think he was outfield. But I bring this up too because here's a professional athlete who he would tell me or he told me on my podcast that he was when I was up to bat, if I struck out, whether if I was looking or I was swinging, if I could smile on the way back to the dugout, that means that I got the lesson. That means mm-hmm. that I could smile in the face <laughs> of adversity and get the lesson. But he goes, there were some times where I'd get so pissed off, I'd throw the bat, throw my helmet, and I wasn't allowing myself to get the lesson. I didn't mm-hmm. hold the space. And he yeah. goes, but I also had to deal with my coaches and all my players that when I did strike out and I was smiling, they would be like, why are you smiling? You just struck out. Mm-hmm. And so he had to fight that as well. But he knew when he got the lesson that he just treated it as as a teachable moment. Yeah, that he had to smile if he wanted to get the lesson. Right. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense, and it comes back to okay, do I really care what other people think? Because if I don't smile because I didn't get the lesson, I'm not as good as a player as if I did get the lesson and I smiled. Right. right. And um, Julio Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners. I mean. He struck out versus uh, Manoa of the Blue Jays. And this isn't a playoffs in a big situation. He's walking back and he's looking back and smiling. And it to me, the look said, you got me, but yeah. I'm going to get you next time. Right. Right. And I think as baseball kind of gets more away from the traditional and more into kind of modern um, with so much of the the influence from the Latin players where it's kind of more fun. Like they see that as a competition. And I think it's going to take the rest of baseball catching up and saying, it doesn't mean that he, he's not competing as hard. It's, it's something click for him, like you said, and that's just how they play. And that's what works for them. Totally. And I have to say this and we'll, we'll get to the next question here, but it, it's, this is, we're hitting the ball back and forth on this stuff because, and I know that my listeners are going to listen to this and learn I'm working with a golfer who is committed to Pepperdine. He's one of the best um, high school golfers in the nation right now. And we're working on this, this very thing. And he's like, he's like, you know, coach, can I smile? Like, can I laugh it off when I, when I hook it? And I said, you can do whatever you want. It's your choice. And he's like, man, he's like, it seems like that's what I want to do. And I'm going to try it on. So he tried it on when he was practicing and he goes, man, it's so hard. Like when I hook it, and I get so pissed off and I'm like, because you don't have any space for you to smile. Mm. So it's called holding space. So mm-hmm. when you, and we have this mantra of, and I have him say it, mm-hmm. if today's going to be great, let it be great. If today's going to be shitty, let it be shitty. Either way, I'm good. Mm-hmm. So we know I'm going to have mistakes. I know I'm going to have some success, but right. I, I'm good either way. So when we started working on his energy and the space around him, when he screws up, now he can kind of feel it and see it. Now the emotional intelligence is being built because Mm. now he's like, Oh, because when I got frustrated and pissed off and I was gripping the bat, it was hard for me to even smile because all my resources are being soaked up by all the frustration. Right. So it was really cool to see him trying it on. It takes practice. Mm-hmm. If you really want to try on smiling at adversity or a mistake, it's going to take some practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you bring that up because we either can go over it now or, or save yeah, it for a little bit, but there's kind of a, uh, an equation that's helpful for that. And so, um, 
this kind of goes into the mindfulness aspect. So I talk in the book, this is where I feel like this book separates itself from other stuff in sports psych is this idea of self-compassion. Um, self-compassion is the new self-confidence in my opinion, because when you can be kind to yourself, it gives you the best chance of getting back to confident, uh, confident play because we usually are the one that are the killers of our confidence. So, uh, but one, the first aspect of what you're talking about is this mindfulness, the ability to let go and start again. Um, and it's like you said, it is not easy. It's so easy for me to say, Hey, just let it go and start again. That is the correct thing to do, but it's the really, really hard thing to do. Uh, and there's this equation, um, it comes from Kristen Neff and self-compassion and she phrases it a different way, but looking at negativity, which is kind of an umbrella for any kind of negative attitude or feeling that you're having, having negativity equals failure times resistance. Mm. So negativity equals failure times resistance. And so negativity, like I said, can be any umbrella of things that you're feeling. And then equals failure. Failure is going to happen. It is our constant. And the thing about failure, if I slice out of bounds, what happened? I sliced out of bounds. I can't get that back. I'm watching my ball sail out of bounds. Okay. And then times resistance. Resistance is wishing things were different than how they are. Uh, So the more I wish something was different than how it is, the more negativity I'm going to experience. Okay. So how do I, what you're talking about is is enjoying or or creating space for either happiness or joy or whatever you want to feel. So then we start to look at, okay, what is the opposite of resistance? Acceptance. The more I can accept what is, the more I, the quicker, the quicker I can move on and the less negativity I experience. So less negativity equals failure because it still happened times acceptance. Mm. And then when we get to the point where we fully accept what is by saying, hmm, that happened. And every time I go golfing, whether that's good or bad, whatever happens, I say, oh, that happened. Because it truly happened. There's no emotional pull. I might feel emotion, but I'm not going to allow myself to feel what I'm feeling in the moment because it it distracts me from doing what I need to do. So I have an athlete who really worked this and we looked at enjoyment equals failure times full acceptance. Oh, wow. Because failure is unavoidable. Negativity is optional. Negativity is always optional. It doesn't have to be because an umpire call can make me upset or it doesn't have to make me upset. It's my choice. How much I wish things were different, how much I wish that 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 strike was called a ball will let me know how much negativity I'm going to have. And so if I want whatever I want, failure is going to be there, but then the 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 variable is how much resistance I have to what happens. So when I'm we've talked about hey, next play, let it go. Like yeah. That is incredible. But what we do in this book or what I do in this book as I get under the layers of why that's incredible, right? We reread it and it's like, oh yeah, that's it's so easy to say. But, but then we look at, okay, wait a second. Acceptance is so powerful because it allows me literally to drop whatever it is and just be okay with what is. I don't have to like what is, but I have to be okay with what is because I can't change it. 
Yeah. I love when you're talking about acceptance. Um, there's a model that that I work in, work within. It's called the tap model or tapping into the moment. Trust, accept, and presence. Mm-hmm. So trust your training, fully trust yourself in the moment, and accept no matter good or bad. Accept the call from the ref. Accept the the decision from the coach. Accept the, the your play that you just performed. It doesn't matter. Accept. And then stay present, stay in the moment. So, so trust, accept, and really, when you tap into the moment, that's really mm. there. It is. It's very simple. Trust, accept, and stay present. Mm-hmm. I've heard you on other podcasts say that, and I keep. Uh, I'm usually driving, so I'm right. I'm taking notes as we're talking because I'm always it. trying to learn. I got my pen and paper. I love so, it. But it's it's so true. So if he wants to smile, if he wants to have joy, even amidst failure. We got to get that acceptance piece down. And I think the acceptance allows us to move into that present moment. Because if I'm resisting something, it means I'm still in the past. I can't move past the past until I have accepted what is so that I can then move into the present. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as I was reading a little bit in your book, the self-compassion piece, um, it brought up, even though it's a little bit different, but we're talking about compassion. and mm-hmm. There's something that I've been talking about as of late called competitive compassion. Hmm. And and there's a lot of different angles of this. Um, one is this, like you say in ba- like in basketball, when when people are warming up, a lot of times yet you, you have another team that uh, is hitting a bunch of threes and they're slam dunking. And what happens is some basketball players get caught up in the awe of it and they get out of focus and they're like, oh my gosh, like, do you see that dunk? Mm-hmm. Instead of like getting in awe and feeling less than and being overwhelmed, it's like you 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 take care of your energy by saying, "Awesome dunk, man! Way to go!" So it doesn't bother you at all. It doesn't get you out. Doesn't get you distracted. You're still you're still in your game. Mm-hmm. But no matter if someone is doing well, you cheer them on, right? Yep. It's kind of like uh, another way of looking at competitive um, uh, compassion is with refs, umpires. Mm-hmm. They have the shittiest job of sports. People, they forget about that. No one likes them. Right. right? So why not, why not befriend them? Why right. not actually talk, take time to talk to them before or during breaks or when they make a great call, tell them they made a great call. Why not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Competitive yeah. compassion. So, and, but your, your energy still taken care of. You're still, you're still in your lane. Yeah, but you can still be competitive and have that compassion. As I was working on my book, I have this common humanity is exactly what you're saying, but that's in the psych world. I didn't know how to phrase it in in kind of sports psych, and that's you're giving me ideas maybe for a second edition or something. But <laughs> this fan. idea of common humanity, where you're not alone, yeah. everyone fails. And that's actually what brings us together. Success doesn't bring us together because not everyone succeeds, but everyone fails. And that's actually what connects us. But something that happens is we're talking about comparisons. So when we looked at self-esteem in the early 90s, they had this self-esteem movement that if we can just get these kids to believe in themselves enough, um, bullying will stop and they will feel good about themselves. And it was a good idea, but it was poor execution. Because self-esteem says, in order for me to feel good about me, I have to feel bad about you. I have to ding you somehow. Mm. And so, but on the flip side is if I'm watching someone dunk and hit threes and all that, 
well, they're good and I'm not. Right. Because it's just not true. Common humanity is like, you can be good and so can I. Exactly. And when we see it like that, all of a sudden, oh, this is going to be fun because you're going to bring out my best. I'm going to bring out your best. And that's what good competition is. Uh, rather than I can't be good if you're good. I, if I can't dunk, that means you're a better player than me. And it's just not true. And so that common humanity is, guess what? That person who dunks, that person who makes threes, they don't, they've, they've missed a dunk. Okay. And they've <laughs> missed three pointers. And it just, it makes them human again, right? It's that me versus you battle, but it becomes a me versus me battle of I've defeated myself before I've given you the chance because I saw you make a three or because I saw you do a 360 dunk. Totally. So my shooting percentage just went down just by watching you do something good. Yeah. Because now I don't believe in myself because I believe more in your abilities than in my own abilities. Totally. It doesn't have to be the case. The athletes put themselves such in the effect of comparison, like, right. Um, I ask players when they, when they start talking about like the top 10 ranked athlete or team that they're going to be playing, you can hear it in their language. And I'm like, it seems like you're spending a lot of time, like focusing how good they are. And they're like, well, they're, they're number 10 in the world. And I'm like, okay, what do you think they're thinking about you? And And they're probably not thinking about them. Exactly. (laughs) But it's just, it's just like, dude, you're good too. Just because there's some label. So Mm -hmm. it's just, it's interesting. Um, That whole comparison can, it it stifles people. Um, I think it's one of, um, because of social media, that I think it's one of the major contributors of, of lack of confidence, um, being out of focus because they're so focused on other people. Yeah. And I think that makes today's athlete, just even being a kid, Grant, you and I didn't wait, you, we didn't grow up in the social media era. We don't know what it's like to be a kid today. And it truly is harder to be a kid than ever because you and I had the kids in our neighborhood, the kids in our city, maybe in our county, we'd hear about it. But now these kids across the world can watch 24 hour a day, all these kids. So I have a story in my book that one of my athletes says, Hey, I'm getting discouraged because I'm not where I want to be yet. And I'm, and and he went further to say, you know, there's this kid who's a ninth grader and he just signed at Vanderbilt. He's throwing 93. And I'm like, well, why are you watching his stuff? And have you ever walked away from your social media encouraged by watching him put post videos? Right, right. And he said, no. I said, okay, well, there's two things you can do. Either delete it. And I know you're not going to delete it. So I'm going to ask you to do what you just said, Grant. I want you to find a way to admire what he's doing. Instead of seeing it as a threat, look at it as a way to admire. Here's what's possible for somebody at that at that level, right? He's a he's a blazing a path for you of what the next level looks like for someone your age. What can you learn from his mechanics? What can you learn from the way he moves and the way, right? Because we're only posting things that look good and they're all edited to, to perfection, which is a whole other topic, right? Right. Um, but I remind them, I said, that kid has bad days too. That kid has an ERA too, I promise you. Uh, because we get this idea in our mind that these people are perfect and we're not. And to kind of go back and answer one of the questions that we were talking about with this comparisons is, I know my inner demons. Okay, I don't know your inner demons. And the fact that I don't know yours, it makes you um, better than me as far as like, like I know that I'm fallible. And if I don't know you that well, 
and I see you make two shots in a row, I'm like, this guy's going to be impossible to guard. Right. But you know your inner demons, and you might shoot those two threes and be like, what if, the, what if those are the only three-pointers I make today? <laughs> so you've got these this two things going on, right? Totally. So it's, it's all about seeing what's clearly in front of you so that you can make the right next move. And seeing clearly is a cognitive is cognitive distortions, right? Exactly. So, um, yeah. I love it, man. We can hit the ball back and forth on this stuff, but I want to make sure I'm talking about your book because we booking. are talking about my book. I'm bringing mm-hmm. stories in from it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, I love the the title, the Pillar Bees. I don't know. Did you get that from the Wu Tang Clan at all? <laughs> no, I actually got it from this restaurant where they have this triple bees, where it's butter biscuits and bacon <laughs> um but then doing research into cognitive behavioral theory there's now a fourth b so it was it was used to be called the triple b formula now it's you know the pillar b's i love it um yeah well, so you think of oh go ahead yeah well I was, you know what's really cool about this is because when you reached out to me well, probably over three years ago right roughly yep. Yep. and and I know that was right after I wrote my book and you were like, uh, man, I want to write a book. And I was like, go get it, man. Go write it. And I remember you were just starting to like get it going. And now it's like pretty much done. It's coming out February 26th. Um, I'm super stoked for you. Um, Thanks. What motivated you to write this book? Because writing a book, not easy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it took you three years to get it done. So uh, what was the motivation behind it? Yeah, so uh, this is all pre-COVID. So February, I know, uh, the summer of 2019, there was a uh, opening for the Houston Astros as a sports site consultant. And I had applied to like four or five different organizations before and never even got a call back. And so I actually got a call back and said, hey, we want you to do an interview um, but it was kind of like this. It was looking at a screen and you see your face. So it's super distracting. You're not talking to anyone. They throw a question up there and you're supposed to answer it. And so I was, uh, and this is all in the intro to my book. And it's, uh, I was cruising along and I'm like, I got this thing. I'm going to be, I'm going to get hired. And then they asked, uh, one of the final questions was what framework do you use when you're working with athletes? Um, and I know you went to, uh, was a JFK university, right? Uh, to get a certificate. And so there's a couple of classes, literally a couple of classes where they go over theories and uh, philosophies. And then the most of the other time it's, it's talking about application stuff. And so I'm like, what framework, uh, what's, what do I need a framework for? I'm like, I'm watching Ken Revisa and Brian Kane just talk about breathing exercises and all that. And so I just totally blanked on the question. And uh, what this book is, is the real answer to that question. Because what the Houston Nationals were really asking me is when someone comes to you, when an athlete comes to you with a problem, how do you approach it? And it's such a simple question. It's like, why have I not asked myself that before? And, you know, when someone comes to you for, with a problem, how do you go about solving it? And so that's what the Pillar Bees is. It's my long-winded three-year three answer to, to answering this question. So that's why I wrote it. Um, because I said, if, if a professional organization is, is asking this question, it's a really important question to know. They want to know that you're not just throwing a bunch of stuff together. They want to know you have a framework for why you do what you do and how you go about it. Uh, and so that's what the pillar bees, 
uh, R is, is it's cognitive behavioral theory. It's what I was using the whole time. I just didn't know I was using it, nor was I using it properly. And so uh, cognitive behavioral theory basically posits that your thoughts impact your emotions, your emotions impact your physiology, and, and your physiology impacts how you perform, uh, kind of in sports terms. And so what I've done is, is created four Bs because athletes are not stupid, but they do appreciate simple. So four Bs, okay, B, that's E, so believing. Believing is our thought life. Breathing, that's our bridge to our emotions. Our body is our body. And then our battling, it's how we go out and perform. So three of the Bs have I-N-G on the end. Mm -hmm. And so in the English language, I-N-G is an ongoing present moment action. Right? I can believe in myself for one play, but then I make an error and I'm not necessarily able to believe in myself. So that's kind of the crux of this is I can teach an athlete in one hour, this whole system is easy, but it's the ING that makes it an ongoing relationship because failure is so constant that the ING is where um, the struggle is, but also where when you can learn in the present moment to like we've talked about, move on and believe in yourself that you are the best person for this job, even though you just failed, that's mastery. That's kind of what that Thane Wrangler, uh, Wrangler quote came from. Yeah. Uh, he says, I have to believe in a shot um, that I haven't hit yet right after I just blew a shot. And it's not easy to do. No. You know, um, I do have a great question that's going to, that segues into what you're saying, but I'll throw in a quick little story, a very, very quick story. And it was a basketball player that I was working with, a high school basketball player who was just on fire. Um, I think three or four games, he was just on fire and always when an athlete is doing something good, they have a great performance. I always ask him, well, how'd you do it? Cause when you can start seeing the trends and whether mm -hmm. it was pre-performance routines or something you did in the game, whatever it was, want to emulate that, want to repeat right. it. Right. So I asked him, like, dude, what, what's making you so, so good. And he goes, you know, I realize I can fail better than the rest. Mm -hmm. I see everyone, they get so caught up in their stuff that mm. their next play speed is slow. Um, I'm on to the next. It, it doesn't matter. I know I'm going to screw up, but I know I can do it better and faster. Mm. And I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. So your edge is that you can fail better than the next person. And yeah. so his relationship of having mistakes, having errors, having failures, whatever, however you want to look at it, it was, it was so good. He's like, I know I'm going to screw up. I just know mm -hmm. I can bounce faster. Right. So um, why do you think it's so hard for people to believe in themselves? And I know it's all contextual. It's a big sure. question. I, right. I'm human. I'm a mental performance coach. I have tools. I teach people how to do this all stuff. I go through the same stuff. Mm -hmm. I go through moments where I'm like, am I really that good? Mm -hmm. You know, can I do this right now? Like, so what do you, what, what do you think, or what do you think there might be multiple things that um, sure. doesn't allow someone to believe in themselves? <clears throat> a couple of things, um, kind of what we talked about with those inner demons, you've lived with you your whole life. And we have an inner critic that questions everything that we do. Whenever there's a growth opportunity, can you really do that? What's interesting is in the book, we talk about um, protecting our mental locker room. So you know, your phone has a password on it. Why? Well, there's valuable information there. Your home has a lock on it. Why? Well, you live in LA. People are going to try to walk in and get to your house right. and you have a wife that, that you want to protect. But 
how often do we allow un, uh, unquestioned access to our mental locker, right? Where the all the stuff from the world uh, has has access, whether it's social media, the news, uh, other people, gossip. We just allow it in without questioning, whoa, do you belong here or not? Right? Thousands of thoughts a day, if not hundreds of thousands of thoughts. And so in my book, we talk about believing you're the best. Above all else, believe you're the best. And once you actually start to do that, um, you're going to get uh, automatic adversity. Are you really the best you really think? And that has to do with what I call the veterans that are still living in our mind, which is our central beliefs or the, or the beliefs that we grew up with. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to like get into whole childhood stuff in this book, but as I'm doing research, how you performed in your youth, how you perform, how you were raised it sets the tone for your perspective for your life if you do not question things. Um, and so when you're talking about, can you really do this? That might stem from a central belief that you had in, in your earlier childhood or, or in your youth. Uh, it could be a college, you know, um, athlete, any time it's, it's, I've failed before. How, how do I know that I can do this again? And so that, kind of gets unearthed in the book and looking at cognitive distortions of how we see the world. But it's very difficult to believe in ourselves because no one necessarily will believe in us until we believe in ourselves. So in this book, we talk about um, Jose Altuve at 16 years old. Uh, he's five, six, and no one, everyone thinks he's a high school player and he's trying out uh, in Venezuela for the Houston Astros. And basically every other team has told him to go home. <laughs> and, uh, and so he gets cut on day one and they say, go home. He comes back on day two and there was someone in the crowd that had heard about him and said, you know what, give him another chance. And that guy, Al Padrick, he uh, signed Altuve that day and to, for $15,000. And then, you know, that was in 2006. By 2012, he's an all-star for the next four or five years, wins yeah. 27 MVP. Um, but he believed in himself above all else. I mean, if every if every organization tells you, no, go home, you're too small, you won't fit, that's really easy to buy into that and believe that. But he was small his whole life, and it, it took just the inner fortitude that said, no, I'm not going to allow myself to accept this because of my size or whatever. And so uh, I have a client right now down in Southern California at a D1 school. His coaches tell him straight up, it's like, you're the seventh out of seven outfielders. You're not going to play at all. Your teammates ranked you this. They don't think much of you. So it's like your coaches don't believe in you. Your teammates don't care about you or believe in you. So who's left? And it has to be you because right. you're your last defense. And it should be your first defense. And right. as you know, the sports world is like this. It's a pyramid. It's not a sphere. And failure, all these things, I mean, it gets, it gets really tiny at the top. No one stays there for long. Uh, you get a, You might get a glimpse of it and then you're done. Uh, so to believe in yourself kind of in a well-rounded or to, to make a long story longer <laughs> is paramount right. to being an elite athlete. You truly have to believe that you are the best in the world and just kind of a disclaimer. It doesn't mean you're better than anyone else. It's not believing you're better than somebody else. It means that through your preparation and your mental preparation, physical too, it's you truly believe that you're fully persuaded you're the right person for this job. You're the right person to get the job done right now. Does it mean you'll do it? No, but it gives you the best chance to do that. And that is a victory in and of itself when you 
believe that you're going to do it because most of the time we don't actually believe in ourselves and we try to just perform. Totally. Also believing is trusting, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you were saying, it's not about being better than the other person. It's about trusting all your preparation, trusting and show up in the moment. And, you know, there's, there's ways of looking at vulnerability, but be vulnerable in the moment with your play. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, it, it's funny when you think about belief or believing in yourself, because I think a lot of times when that inner critic, all that chatter, a lot mm-hmm. of times what happens is we lose our power as humans and athletes or performers by listening to those thoughts. So then we become in the effect of it and then we lose our power. So when we build awareness that we know we have some of that, that chatter going on, that noise, we have to talk to it. Mm-hmm. You talk to it and by verbalizing it, it's not about mentally saying it all the time. There's so much more power and there's a lot of research on saying stuff out loud. Mm-hmm. So you have to talk to it because if you don't talk to it, you'll become part of the audience of of that show in your mind and you'll start listening and you start believing and then it becomes a loop and then you're stuck. Right. Yeah. In, the, yeah, in the book, we talk about that mindfulness piece of what you were talking about, which is that the power and the pause. Yeah. Um, when we hear the negative thoughts, that's not me. That's a negative thought. So it's almost like uh, taking in selfie mode of, hey, I notice I'm, I notice I'm saying this. And it's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow you in. So in self-compassion, it's almost like trick-or-treating. A thought can knock on the door and you can look through the peephole and be like, hey, what do you want? Uh, but when you get a little bit more comfortable, you might crack open the door and say, hey, how can I help you? And you get a little bit more comfortable with it, you might open the door and let it in the mud room and say, hey, what do you want? Or at some point, you can say, hey, come on in. Let's go have some tea at the table. Let's talk about this. Why are you feeling the way you're feeling? Or why are you saying this to me? Because our thoughts are trying to protect us. They truly are trying to protect us. When, you know, the kid that dunks says, oh, you're not going to stand a chance today. You might as well not try. That's protecting me from the shame or the embarrassment of getting beat in front of people. So it's actually trying to help. But then you can look at that and say, hey, you know what? I didn't invite you to my house. You can be here, but I don't have to entertain you. Walk around, do what you want to do. And when you're ready, you leave. And what that does is it takes the power of that fear or that whatever it is, and it takes it away and it gives it back to you because you own it. It's like a, you have a two liter bottle and you heat it, right? It has that pressure. Well, yeah. if you have the, the, the top unscrewed because you're allowing it to be there. It can get as hot as it wants, but the air can just flow out. It's when we feel we get backed into this corner and there's only one route and that's to run. That's when we're in trouble, but we regain that power when it's like, hey, I notice I'm having this thought right now. It's not me. It's just what I'm thinking. And that's what's where the power is, is when I can change my thinking. If I can have that power in the past to say, I notice I'm thinking this. I don't have to be thinking this. I can think something else. Yeah. You know, and... Also, to what affects, you know, our beliefs is is fear, right? So mine's not working well today, but there's um, there's an author of this book um, and she writes or she she says this in her book that fear can be on the bus. It just can't drive the bus. Mm, yeah. Right. So like you're saying, like, you know, whatever that thought is, if it's fear, whatever it is, you can, you're here, but you ain't going to drive this thing called my body, right. you know, yeah. so and that's where. We get in, that's where we need to build awareness so we can talk to it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like there's a lot of times where when people are doing so well, 
But just because you're doing well doesn't mean that, that pressure goes away. Pressure is always there. There's mm-hmm. always going, there's fear going to be there. There's going to be things it can stay there, but you're not going to let it drive you. You're not going to let it like lose your power to it. Right. That's what we, that's why talking, um, engaging our self-talk, our inner dialogue is huge. Um, mm-hmm. And for the sake of time, because I, I love this story and your book, when we talk about um, believing in ourselves and using language to get reps in, to train our brain, our unconscious mind, share uh, real quick the story about being the best baby diaper changer <laughs> and how yeah. you use language. Sure. So you might have, my little guy just woke up, but my wife's taking care of him right now so we can do this. Um, growing up, I always wanted kids, but I never wanted to hold anybody else's kid, let alone change a diaper. And so I, I literally never held a baby, a newborn, until I had my own son. And um, I knew diaper changing was was coming up. And that's something that I had never done, even holding babies. So what I did was, as we were in the hospital for a couple of days, every time a nurse came in, I watched how she changed the diaper. And that's just what I did for two days straight. I studied it. And uh, because they're the best diaper changes in the world, that's what they do. They change diapers. Uh, and so I get home and, you know, it's my turn to finally change my little guy. And I take a nice deep breath, kind of away from the diaper, of course. And I just say best diaper changer in the world, best diaper changer in the world. And I just allowed my training, which I didn't have any physical training. I just had seen it, right? And that's what we do when we visualize yeah. Uh, I visualized myself being one of those nurses and I did it with confidence and I did it with love, right? If, if we haven't done something before, there's usually awkwardness and a little fear and, and timidity. But I was like, Hey, this is my son. You know, this is what I love to do. I'm changing his diaper. And I just did it. And it wasn't pretty the first time or the 30th time, but you know, by number 50, I'm like, I'm still not really good at this, but I still believe that I, every time I change the diaper, I'm the best diaper changer in the world. So um, like you're talking about with the language and pairing that with visualization. Wow. I can visualize anything and believe that I'm the best. And then it doesn't always go perfectly to plan, but it goes a lot better than if I was like, Oh my gosh, how do I do this? And I'm getting frantic about how to change right. it. Totally. Wow. Well, I always ask this question again, I could speak to you for another hour on this stuff. Sure. Um, yeah. this has been really a great talk today. Um, I'm all about reflection because I I believe that's where we that's where we gain our wisdom. Um, that's how we. You don't have to wait until you're 80 years old to be wise. <laughs> you know that's why I teach young athletes to get in to install a reflective practice so they can get the wisdom sooner than later. So um, when you think about your whole career as an athlete, as a mental performance coach, now an author, <laughs> what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? Um to get out of my own way. Mm. Um, I don't remember what book it was, but they said, get out a piece of paper and list out all of your fears. And I started writing them. And I mean, I don't know if my parents will ever hear this, but one of mine was if I become rich, my parents will want my money (laughs) because Mm. we didn't grow up with a ton of money. And it was just, I had this cognitive distortion that money, you know, once you get it, people will want it and everything's different. And when I wrote it down, and I actually looked at it in the physical world. I laughed. I'm like, are you serious? This is what's been holding you back. Wow. And uh, that's what I've learned is that how we see things, 
we have to check and say, hey, am I seeing things clearly? Because if I'm not seeing things clearly, I don't know the correct action to take. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned is get out of my own way because I've, I've really never failed uh, at anything. And that means I haven't pushed myself enough. So I'm still like you're talking about, we're still growing um, as, as professionals because we're still performers. And so what the, one of the things is just go till no is, is something that I go, go till no, ask Grant if I can be on his podcast until he says no, go ask Brian Kane until he says no. And, and, and just, it, the growth that happens and the, and the enjoyment of life and the freedom that comes from it, it's incredible. Will I get, uh, will I fail at times? Absolutely. But in, in my life, I still haven't really failed. And so that still has to come, but I want to run towards that rather than away from it. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful. Beautifully said. One thing I heard recently was, um, and it's, this is like with business, um, Someone asked somebody on a podcast that it was like, what's the edge? And you and I are running our own businesses, right? So we, we are entrepreneurs. We are owners of our business. Um, he says, your edge is never quitting. Mm -hmm. Do you have people quit? People, when it comes to running their business, there's, there's just the high rate of just folding, the, folding up the tent, moving on because they, they couldn't handle it. So if you can actually never quit, that, that's the edge. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of goes into to a little bit of what you're saying of, you know, not getting your own way, like just like never, but never quitting. And that's something that I, I've been telling myself, whether it's this podcast, whether it's other adventures that I'm doing, just keep on showing up, even when mm -hmm. it sucks. Well, even when it's like, it's so shitty right now. Like I'm like, ah, if I want to mm -hmm. do this, I just wake up the next one and show up and show up. Mm -hmm. And I love the Chinese proverb, fall down eight times, get up nine. Like mm -hmm. just keep on getting up. And I think the reason why I have that attitude is because I am an athlete and I spent all those years competing and failing right. and learning how to, to deal with the failure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, I agree. I can't add anything to that. <laughs> I love <it>. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do my, I know the book doesn't come out until February 26th of 2023. Mm -hmm. Um, where can they buy it is, can they do pre-sales? How can they connect with you on social media? Sure. Uh, well, right now I'm doing my favorite chapter is above all else, believe you the best, which is one that you, you kind of read this morning. We talked mm -hmm. about, and that is available right now to download for free. If you go to the pillar bees book.com, um, you can do slash sample if you want. They'll take you to the same place, but the Pillar Bees, P-I-L-L-A-R-B-S book.com. Um, you'll get a free chapter and you'll get some updates as to when the book's coming out because we forget all the time about these things. We got busy lives. Uh, on Instagram, I'm most active on there. Renewed Mind Performance is all one word. Those are the best ways to connect. And then it has my information on how to get a hold of me. Ray three at renewedmind.com or com. It's my email. Awesome. Well, dude, I'm, I'm so stoked for you to, to, to finally get your book out. Um, you're thriving, you're doing a lot of great work with athletes, man. And I'm honored to have you on the show and probably going to have you back on the show in the future. So uh, thank you for sharing your story and your book, man. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Grant. All right. Woo! Woo!